Welcome to Heightened Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and civil rights. I'm Joe Dunman. In the first bonus episode of Extra Scrutiny, I shared some of the more memorable questions asked during oral argument by Justice Clarence Thomas, who almost never speaks from the bench. In this episode, we'll consider another current justice who does quite the opposite. It has long been customary for the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court to ask questions of the advocates who come to argue before them. Lots of questions. And the questioning has grown more intense over time. In the past couple of decades, it has become exceedingly rare for any lawyer to talk uninterrupted for more than a minute or two when arguing before the court. And it's not just one or two justices. On the current court, all the justices but one are frequent question askers. Only Clarence Thomas is routinely silent. The rest, to various extents, are active participants in the oral arguments. And many past justices distinguish themselves as persistent and sometimes entertaining interrogators. Justice Potter Stewart, who served on the court from 1958 to 1981, was quite comfortable going toe-to-toe with some of the very best advocates of that era, with his scratchy baritone voice easily distinguished in the old audio recordings. I say, that's the reason I asked you at the beginning, what, uh, within what framework should this question be decided? Should it be a, a theological one, yes. or a philosophical one, or a medical one, or are we confined here to dealing with... Uh, I think, Your Honor, that the court... Constitutional meaning of it. Justice Antonin Scalia, a firebrand conservative known for his idiosyncratic approach to legal interpretation, was also known for his sharp questioning and even sharper wit. During his 30 years on the court, he routinely outpaced his colleagues in eliciting laughter from the audience and the advocates before him. prohibit the burning of copies of the Constitution? Not to my knowledge, there wouldn't be the same interest in, in the symbolism of that. No, Your Honor, it would not be the same interest, I don't believe. Why is that? I was going to ask about the state flower. You're, you're, you're not going to... <laughs> but one current justice stands out for another reason. I'm talking about Stephen Breyer. In 1994, President Bill Clinton nominated Breyer to take the seat vacated by Harry Blackman. Breyer, a graduate of Stanford and Harvard universities, had previously been a judge on the First Circuit Court of Appeals. He's generally associated with the liberal wing of the court, embracing a judicial philosophy considered more pragmatic than dogmatic. Breyer's a multi-talented man, good at many things, but one skill he often lacks is brevity. Often when he asks questions from the bench, they seem less like questions and more like philosophical monologues. Some of his questions are so long, they take up whole pages of the official transcript the court keeps for its oral arguments. Law professor Josh Blackman of the South Texas College of Law actually tracks these long questions on his blog under the title Briar Pages, and some of them are quite impressive. For example, this question from the late 2011 case Hosanna Tavor v. EEOC, a case about the exception religious employers get in federal anti-discrimination law. I don't think it's a question of the importance of either function to the, the religious association. It's a question of the realm of permissible. Yeah, but some, then you have to say that it's more important to let people go to court to sue about sex discrimination than it is for a woman to get a job. Now, I can't say that one way or the other. So, 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 so I'm, I'm stuck. And since, since I'm really sort of, this is tough and I'm stuck on this, uh, I don't see how you can avoid going into religion to some degree. You have to decide if this is really a minister, for example, and what kind of minister. That gets you right involved. Or if you're not going to do that, 
you're going to go and look to see uh, what are their religious tenets, and that gets you right involved. I just can't see a way of getting out of something, uh, getting out of the whole thing. I don't see how to do it. So suppose you said, in, in case of doubt like that, we'll try what Congress suggested. And now we have here a borderline case of ministry, not the heartland case. So you say, all right, where you have a borderline case, the constitutional issue goes away, and what Congress said is okay. So now what you have to prove is you have to prove that uh, the Church has to show that the applicant was disciplined or whatever because she didn't conform to the religious tenets. All right, that's what they have to show. And I'm sorry, they maybe only make a prima facie case, but they got to show it. And, and if they don't show that there was at least some evidence to that effect and that somebody knew about the religious tenant and there was something like that, maybe it's in the air, as is obvious with Justice Alito's question, but where it isn't in the air, you'd have to make a showing. Now, now I see that's an interference, but, but I don't see how you avoid an interference someplace or the other. Otherwise, you're going to get into who's a minister. So, so what's the answer to this dilemma? My, at the moment, I'm, I'm making an argument for following what Congress said. Go back and try it that way. And if they can uh, show in this case and she shows in this case, nobody ever thought of this tenant. Nobody told me. And they didn't read it. Uh, then she's going to win. And if they come in and show that they really did this because of their religious tenant, they'll win. What about that? The actual three-word question, what about that? had 44 lines of buildup, spanning three pages of the transcript. And that question, according to Professor Blackman, held the record for longest Breyer page for nearly five years. Then, in late March 2016, Breyer spoke for 49 transcript lines in the case of Zubik versus Burwell, dealing with religious exemptions to the Affordable Care Act. Are you finished? I, yeah, I am. All right. Um, I, I have a, a — you must have thought about this question, I suspect. Uh, I'll assume, I want to assume, for purposes of the question, that this isn't just a matter of signing a form with an objection. Your your clients are involved in uh, the health care plan in major ways. They probably figure sign papers every five months or every day, and they choose insurers. They do all kinds of things. And it's the topping, the icing on the cake that pushes it over the edge, which is that you have to. Uh, fill out the form saying, I object, this is my insurer, you then can contact my employees, da-da-da-da-da. It's a whole bunch of things. So the question is, putting that all together, now are they protected by RIFRA? I think the reason that the Court went from Sherbert and Werner over to Smith was they couldn't figure out how to apply Sherbert and Werner. And it's Sherbert and Werner that RIFRA picks up. And this is at least one difficulty with it, which is where I'm going. And I've even read St. Benedict. You know, I'm not, not for religious purposes. I'm trying to find out something about being a member of society. Sometimes when a religious person who's not a hermit or a monk is a member of society, he does have to accept all kinds of things that are just terrible for him. Think of the Quakers, the Quakers who object to Vietnam. Think of the people who object to laws protecting blasphemy. Think of the people who object to shoveling the snow in front of the walk that will lead to the abortion clinic. Think of the Christian scientists who know when they report the accident, the child will go to the hospital or the adult and receive medical care that is against their religion. 
So there are loads of things I've just given you four. Think of the taxes, where there's no question that doesn't violate the religious clause. But plenty of other things do. So what's the line? Why do the Quakers have to pay the taxes for Vietnam? But you don't find the religious Jew or Muslim getting an extra day off during the week when the law says nobody can work on Sunday because their Sabbath is on Saturday. What is the line? And I've been reading and reading to try to find a fairly clear, simple statement of what that line is and how it works. And to repeat the difficulty of Sherbert and Werner, which is what RIFRA does, quite honestly, doesn't help me. But you might. I'm going to try, Justice Breyer, and then I'm going to try to reserve my time for rebuttal. That record ended up being very short-lived. In April 2016, during oral arguments in the case of U.S. versus Texas, a case about federal immigration policy, Breyer embarked on an extended soliloquy that set an even more impressive new record. It took up 52 lines of the transcript. The bottom line is, if we're going to have to issue more driver's license, it's going to cost more money. Yeah, that's, that's the point, Breyer. and I, I, I would like to ask a question. The only thing I found here is about money, really. If there's something else that's worrying you, it's, it's sort of hidden. But money is money. I understand that. And my question is about standing. And this is technical, uh, but it's important to me. Uh, looking at the briefs, awful lot of briefs, senators, both sides. Awful lot of briefs from states, both sides. Members of Congress, why? Because this has tremendous political valence. Keep that in mind. Now, keeping that in mind, let's go back to two old cases, which are scarcely mentioned, but old Supreme Court cases never die. <laughs> Unless, luckily, they're overruled. And a few have been, that they're submerged like icebergs. The one I'm thinking of is Frothingham v. Mellon, Massachusetts v. Mellon. And there, in those cases, the federal government had given something to some people. There were beneficiaries. Other people wanted to sue because they said that means we're going to have to pay more money. And the court said, you other people from Massachusetts, I'm sorry Massachusetts lost, but lo and behold, it did. That's just because I'm from Massachusetts. No, but the, 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 the point is they lost because, says the court, we can't let you just sue on the basis that you as a taxpayer will have to spend more money? Because if we do, taxpayers all over the country will be suing in all kinds of cases, many of which will involve nothing more than political disagreements of all kinds, and before you know it, power will be transferred from the President and the Congress where power belongs to a group of unelected judges. And for that reason, we say you individuals who will have to pay more money, will, cannot just sue on that basis. And as for the state, it cannot represent you parents patriae because this is between the federal government and the citizens. They're the ones who have to pay. And as far as Massachusetts is concerned, again, bringing up to a case they won, that was their own coastline. 
And that's not money. That's the physical territory belonging to Massachusetts. And, of course, they have standing to protect that. But here now, I want your well, thing for a second. I'm finished. You see, you see my point, and I want to know how you get around that. Frothingham, Massachusetts v. Mellon, that when you give a benefit here, hurt the taxpayer by a money over there, he doesn't have the kind of interest that gives him standing. So far, that stands as the current record holder in the Briar Pages archive. But there's no reason to believe Justice Breyer won't someday soon set a new milestone in Supreme Court wordiness. Kudos to Professor Blackman for keeping track. Thanks for listening to this episode of Extra Scrutiny, a bonus series of short episodes exploring the idiosyncratic quirks of the Supreme Court's members throughout history. If you enjoy Extra Scrutiny and the regular episodes of this podcast, please support it by visiting its website, scrutinypod.com, subscribing through any popular podcast service, and by donating to its Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash scrutinypod. Thanks again. Thanks again.